Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. And I often don't mention names from the pulpit because I want to be careful that I don't slander a person's character or that I misrepresent information. And on this particular issue, I've waited a while to see how things have panned out before I've made a public statement. And so I'm going to address it this morning. Many of you may be familiar with the resignation of Mark Driscoll from Mars Hill Church. Mark Driscoll is a popular pastor. Mars Hill Church was one of the largest megachurches in America. And back in October... He stepped down and resigned, and now basically the church has folded, and it's, it's pretty much a, a sad situation. And I'm not going to go into all the gory details about Mark Driscoll, but I do want you to be aware of a couple of things. Uh, he was accused of plagiarism on seven books, and he did get um, accused of plagiarism, and it came out that, yes, he in fact did plagiarize, and Lifeway has pulled almost all of his books from their bookshelves. He used church funds to basically pay the New York Times bestseller um, machinery there to try to promote his book, to inflate his book sales. He told his congregation that they were going to have this mission fund that was going to go to overseas missions. And he promoted it as overseas missions, but then when it came to light, the money was used not for overseas missions, but was used for their own church planning. In August of last year, Acts 29... Acts 29 Church Planning was the church planning network that Pastor Mark Driscoll actually founded. Matt Chandler, who a lot of you are doing his his studies and know about Matt Chandler, he's the president now of Acts 29. They actually asked Mark Driscoll and his church to not be a part of the Acts 29 for, quote, that the name of Christ will not continue to be dishonored. Paul Tripp, a famous pastor, was brought in as an outside consultant And this is what he said. He said, quote, This is without a doubt the most abusive, coercive ministry culture I've ever been involved with. They told Pastor Mark that he needed to take a six-month sabbatical, I mean a six-week sabbatical to kind of let things calm down, and they were going to do an investigation. In the meantime, 20 former elders and staff members and pastors came together, 20 of them, and, and, and gave a formal critique or a formal list of charges against Pastor Mark, accusing him of bullying, abusing power. He was accused of cussing out other elders in an elders' meeting. He was accused of shaming other elders because of their weight. He had a violent streak. He became very combative and self-centered. And in October of last year, he finally resigned. And his board of overseers said this when he resigned, quote, Mark has at times been guilty of arrogance, responding to conflict with a quick temper and a harsh speech and leading the staff and elders in a domineering manner. 
he has a famous sermon called the bus sermon. I don't know if you've heard the bus sermon. The bus sermon goes like this. Mark Driscoll said, listen, our church is the bus, and we're going in a direction on the bus. I'm the bus driver. If you don't like where we're going, then we're just going to run over you, but you need to get on the bus. And I've got a bunch of bodies in the back of our building to prove how many people we've thrown under the bus. So if you're not with me and you're not on the bus, we will run over you. It's on YouTube. You can watch that video. And I'm deeply saddened by this because I used to listen a lot to Mark Driscoll. A lot of you have done some of his studies. And and it's saddening to me, and it's also a warning to me of how easy it is for a pastor to become isolated, conceited, puffed up with pride and arrogant, all at the expense of the congregation. And I believe we should pray for Mark Driscoll and for his family. Um, We don't know all the details. We just know that here is a man of God that was leading one of the largest networks in the United States and had one of the largest churches in the United States and had to resign because he was accused of being abusive, a bully. Which brings up a very legitimate question this morning. What should be the ministry heart of a pastor? And let me ask it more pointedly and more personally. What should you, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, expect from your pastor? What should you expect from me? Now, this puts me in a very vulnerable spot this morning. It it puts me under the, the examination of the Scriptures because I'm asking you to evaluate me in light of the Scriptures. And so I'm the first to stand up here and say that I'm weak, I failed, I'm not perfect. There's a lot of things about my leadership that, um, that, that I just don't like at times. And it's humbling and it's convicting to stand before you. But I would just say this, as a congregation, you have every right, and I will say this very clearly, You have every right to hold me accountable as your pastor to the biblical standards set forth in the Scripture. And you should have high expectations of what I'm supposed to be. And this is not a sermon I would particularly like to preach. It wasn't like, hey, let me preach a sermon about how Emmanuel is supposed to like their pastor. But when you do expository preaching through books of the Bible and you come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, you're like, okay, we've got to deal with this. And so I just want to admit to you that I've failed many times. Over the 10 years or so that I've been here, I haven't led in ways that I probably should have led. I've made mistakes. I've had bad attitudes. There's times where I need to uh, come back and repent. There's, there's times where I haven't been everything that God's called me to be. And so I'm just thankful. Let me just, just put it out there. I am thankful that for the past 10 years, I've had a wonderfully patient congregation who's learned to deal with an imperfect pastor. And and I couldn't do this without elders and deacons and staff around me to encourage me. And so from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see the heart of Paul. Paul was the church planning pastor in Thessalonica. He was there on three Sabbaths. And if you remember, during that short time before he was run out of the city, he pastored, he shepherded, he loved, he encouraged, he admonished this young flock. And at the time of writing 1 Thessalonians, he's back in Corinth, and he's writing back to this church that he desperately wants to see again. And as I was studying this passage of Scripture, I thought, you know, we could just go through and look at Paul, and we will, but I want to make this more personal this morning. 
what should you expect of me as your pastor and of Pastor Andrew as youth pastor? And what we see here are six key characteristics. It's almost a blueprint, if you will, a model that we see in Paul that I think should be the model for all pastors, all those in spiritual leadership. And so uh, let's just kind of retrace our steps. The very first message we had in 1 Thessalonians was very personal to you. What is a true Christian? And we asked the question and we evaluated in light of the scripture, what's a true Christian? Last week, we said, what's an obedient church? And we looked and saw that an obedient church corporately means that we're imitators of Jesus and that we're um, an example to others around us and that we're repenters. And so for the past two weeks, you have not gotten off the hook. This week, you get off the hook for one week. I'm on the hook. I'm on the hook. And so what should you expect from me as your pastor? Maybe you've never thought about this, or maybe you've thought long and hard. I'm like, I'm finally glad he's addressing this. So I want this message to be in light of what the Scripture has to say, okay? Because here's the issue. When it comes to pastors, all of us have preferences, We like certain personalities, we like certain preaching styles, we like certain um, ministry philosophies, we resonate with certain pastors and those that have shepherded us, and those are legitimate things. I'm not downplaying those things. Uh, We we should connect and we should uh, be on board, and and I'm not downplaying those issues, but the real question we've got to ask is not so much what's our preference, but the question is what does God's Word say about it, and then how do we line up with the authority of Scripture? And So what I want us to do is I want us to ask the question, or I want you to ask the question, what should you, as Emmanuel Baptist Church, expect from me as your pastor? And we will see these six things unfold in all of chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. So let's read this together, and then let's look at these six things that you should expect from me. And I will begin by saying, number one, I don't live up to these. But these are the model that we have before us in the Scripture. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our, ourselves as well, because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
For you suffered the same thing from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but the wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying his, his ministry to them was not in vain. It was not unfruitful, even though Paul was there for only three weeks before he had to be um, snuck out of town at night, if you will, because there was a mob coming. He was only there for three weeks with this small, struggling church, but he says, in those three weeks, I accomplished a lot. It wasn't in vain. So what I want us to do is I want us to see these six characteristics of a pastor, and I want you to remember to ask the question, what should you expect from me as your pastor? First of all, we see Paul's ministry message paul's ministry message we see this in verse two but though we already had suffered and been shamefully treated at philippi as you know we had boldness in our god to declare to you the gospel of god in the midst of much conflict paul's ministry message and it's simply this this is what you should expect you should expect your pastor to be bold in preaching the gospel Paul uses the word here, bold. We, we, we preach to you with boldness. It really means to have courage in the face of trial, to have courage in the face of opposition, to not be afraid to speak the truth, to not be ashamed of the gospel. Our friend Artaxerti has said this. He says, when the Holy Spirit powerfully attends the preaching of the word, there's an ease of speaking, a holy authority, an otherworldly kind of, in, of courage. You should expect your pastor to have this type of otherworldly courage to boldly share the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 2 Timothy 1.7-8, Paul says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. You should expect me to be bold in sharing the gospel. In a day and age when many pastors are being politically correct and trying to be nice, and not step on anybody's toes, and waffling on Jesus being the only way of salvation, you need a man of God to stand up here on Sunday mornings and not tell you what's popular, but be bold in declaring the gospel. Because you're not going to hear it anywhere else. So you should expect boldness and courage to preach repentance, to preach sin, to address issues, to not shy away from what the full counsel of God's word says. And listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen. Paul says, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me 
if I do not preach the gospel. Paul's basically saying, I can't help but preach the gospel. And so in a day and age where pastors are waffling all across the culture, you, you need, in this culture, you need someone to stand in this place Sunday after Sunday and stand up and say, it's not my opinion, it's thus says the Lord, and do it with boldness. Listen to pastors, listen to Spurgeon's words to young pastors. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He's talking to pastors here, young pastors that are getting ready to go out and preach. He says this, If any of you wish to preach a gospel that will be pleasing to the times, preach it in the power of the devil, and I have no doubt that he will willingly do his best for you. And why do we do it? Why are we bold? Is it because we want to be stepping on people's toes? Do we want to just be uh, kind of irritable? Is it because we like to pick a fight? Why, Why are we bold as pastors? The reason that I'm bold is because I honestly believe, I honestly believe that the power of the gospel is powerful. And it does things. When, when the preached word is preached, God shows up and does things. Look at chapter, chapter 1, verse 5. We, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but go back to chapter 1, verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then go back to chapter 2, to, to, uh, chapter two verse 13. Notice what Paul says in verse 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Did you notice what Paul says? The word that was preached is at work. It's the Greek word energeo, where we get our word energy. It's this whole idea of God's sustained energy that comes through the preached word. And so when God preach, or when, 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 when people preach, when pastors preach, God does something through his word. It's at work. One preacher has said this, the word of the Lord is living and active, powerful and creative. The word of God not only informs, it performs, it transforms. The word of God makes things happen. And I believe that. I'm not just standing up here giving information. I believe that when this word is preached, the Holy Spirit takes it in such a way that it becomes at work in you who believe. And that's why you need solid, consistent preaching of the gospel boldly from a man of God who's not going to talk about himself. It's not going to talk about his life story. He's not going to give you happy hops to how to get to heaven or little trite stories. You need the full counsel of God's word so that that word can be at work in you. That's the only thing that's going to sustain you. In times of trial, in times of despair, in times of hurting, the only thing that's going to sustain you is the Word of God. And that's what you need. You need a pastor that's not ashamed of the gospel, that's going to preach with boldness. That's what you must expect. Number one, you must expect your pastor to preach with boldness, the Word of God. But let's look at number two. We see Paul's ministry motive. Paul's ministry motive, we see this in verses 3 through 6, and so here's what you should expect. As we see Paul's ministry motive, here's what you should expect. You should expect your pastor to have pure motives as one approved by God. You should expect your pastor to have pure motives as one approved by God. Now, Paul is defending his ministry from those that are criticizing him. He probably had those that attacked him, those that said, you're a false teacher, those that said, you're not all that. And and Paul really lists nine here. 
We're going to go over these briefly. We're not going to deal you know, in depth with all of these, but he really gives nine motives that weren't his. Nine things that, that weren't part of his, his motives. And so these are in verses 3 and following. First of all, he said, our appeal does not spring from error. I'm not trying to be a false teacher. I'm not teaching heresy or impurity. I have pure motives. I'm sincere. Or any attempt to deceive. Paul's not going to try to pull one over on them or fool them. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And he says not to please men. Uh, His motive, I'm not here to please men. I'm not here to stroke your ego. I'm not here to to manipulate you. I'm not here to try to, the only one I'm really wanting to please here is God. To please God who tests our hearts. And then in verse 5 he says, we didn't come to you with flattery. I'm not going to come with smooth talking. I'm not going to come to try to make you, uh, flatter you with smooth talk. He says, I didn't come here with a pretext for greed. I didn't come, I didn't come to do this ministry, Paul says, in order to get rich. And sadly, many televangelists, that's their whole operation in wanting to do ministry, to get rich. And here's what's sad about a lot of televangelists. They are at the top of the pyramid scheme. And they're getting richer and richer while those that are poor and widows and orphans are getting exploited as they go into their Learjets and go on to their million-dollar homes and get richer and richer. Paul says, I'm not seeking glory. Verse 6, we didn't seek glory from people, whether from you or for others. I'm not in this for the, for the, for the celebrity pastor. I'm not in this to get glory. I'm not in this to, to have attention drawn to myself. And then, and then Paul says, I'm not putting unrealistic demands on you. Look at verse 6. He said, I could have made these demands on you as an apostle. Though we could have made demands on you as an apostle, Paul could have come to them and said, listen, Thessalonians, you don't understand something. Do you know who I am? I'm the apostle Paul. So you better stop and do what I say, because I'm the apostle Paul. He doesn't do that. Anytime a pastor has to stand up and say, you better do this because I'm the pastor, he's already lost. He's already lost. Paul says, these aren't my motives. So these should not be my motives as well. I'm not in this for the money. In it for the celebrity, in it for the fame, in it for the greed. As a matter of fact, a pastor needs to be opposite of all these things. 1 Peter 5 Two through three, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. Notice in verse four what Paul says. He says he'd been entrusted with the gospel, meaning he was trustworthy. He, he was worthy to be entrusted with the message. He was trustworthy. And then also in verse 4, it says he was approved. It's mean God, it means that he had genuinely passed the test, that God had so worked in Paul's life and called him that, that he was a man of integrity. He passed the test. He was the real deal. And he came with pure motives. He wasn't fake. So what should you expect from your pastor? That I would come with pure motives. That I would not be in it for money or power or position or popularity or fame but that my motives would be pure and and that's what you need from a pastor someone with pure motives number three let's see paul's ministry attitude we see this in verses seven and eight paul's ministry attitude and so here's what you should expect from your pastor as we look at paul's ministry attitude you should expect your pastor to deeply love his flock with tenderness You should expect your pastor to deeply love his flock with 
tenderness. Notice in verse 7 the metaphor that Paul gives. We were gentle. The word gentle really means a toddler. We were like a toddler. That doesn't mean Paul was immature, but he uses this metaphor of being a nursing mother. Now, I don't quite understand this because I've never been a nursing mother. It just never happened for me. I don't expect it to happen anytime soon. But it's this image here. And Paul uses this interesting image of a nursing mother. What does a nursing mother do? A nursing mother cares for and loves and encourages and protects that child. And Paul says, this is, this is what I was like with you. I was like a nursing mother. I was like I'd given birth to you. And I, and I want your best, and I love you, and I support you, and I, I encourage you. And so you don't just need a pastor that preaches from the pulpit and yells at you. You need somebody that comes down from the stage, gets among the sheep, so he begins to smell like the sheep. That was the issue with Mark Driscoll. Do you know that he had a secret passageway between his office and the stage? So that when he got done preaching, he would never have to deal with his congregation. He went through the secret passageway, went back to the stage, because he said, I don't want to deal with my people. You, you don't want a pastor that's all he's going to do is he's going he's to preach at you from up here, and that's all you see of him. You need a pastor that gets down in your lives and, and loves you and shepherds you tenderly with deep affection. Notice what Paul says there. Verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. So Paul says, listen, we wanted to preach the gospel. We wanted to share the gospel. Yes, it's important to share the gospel. And we, we did that. We preached to you, but we also wanted to share our lives. We wanted our lives to be inter- interacting with your lives. We wanted to have this, this fellowship, this, this um, affection, this sharing. And the word that Paul uses there for share means to share generously, to share liberally. So you should expect your pastor not just to be a guy up here that preaches at you, but one who can come down from the stage and encourage you and love you and support you with tenderness, like a nursing mother would to her children. Paul's ministry. Fourth, we see Paul's ministry conduct. In verses 9 through 12, his conduct So as we look at Paul's ministry conduct, here's what you should expect from your pastor. You should expect your pastor's life to back up his challenges for you to live a godly life. You should expect your pastor's life to back up his challenges for you to live a godly life. Notice what Paul says in verses 9 through 12. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil... We worked night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you. Paul basically says, I worked hard. I labored and toiled. I didn't go to the golf course every day. I didn't just go hang out at Starbucks and kind of act important. I spent long hours working among you, leading you, teaching you, sometimes late into the night. And and I just want to tell you something. You know, some of you have really nice jobs. You get to come home from your job. Do you realize the pastor never gets to go home from his job? Cell phone's always on, it's 24-7. And that's just the nature of the ministry. And I've gotten those calls at midnight where there's been a car accident or somebody's gotten sick or I have to rush to the hospital. And so Paul says, listen, the life of a minister is one where you have to work hard. And I've noticed this over the years. 
The pastorate is a place where a lot of lazy men can hide out. Think about it for a moment. You're your own boss. Nobody checks your time card. You kind of set your own office hours. Nobody comes in and really, you know, holds you accountable. And so you pretty much can do whatever you want as a pastor. And so I've seen a lot of pastors that take advantage of that, and they don't work hard, and they don't labor, and they don't put in the, the long hours, and they don't, they don't give themselves to preaching, and they don't give themselves to teaching, and they don't give themselves to loving. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This passage combines two prominent roles of a, of a, of a pastor. He's to lead well, and he's to labor to the point of exhaustion at preaching and teaching. He's to labor at leading and labor at preaching. And it's hard work. And so you should expect your pastor to be laboring, hard work, long hours, doing these types of things. But you also need a pastor whose lifestyle backs up what he's calling his congregation to do. Look at verse 10. Your witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct to you believers. Paul says, listen, my lifestyle backed it up. I was righteous, I was holy, I was blameless. These are the qualifications of a pastor. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy and if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that is a pastor or an elder, preacher, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. It is the height of arrogance and self-delusion for me as your pastor to call you to repentance and to obedience and then to go out and do exactly the opposite of what I'm calling you to do. Richard Baxter says this, What a terrible thing when we study to say all we can against sin, make it appear horrible to our people, and then to be found living in sin, secretly cherishing what we have publicly denounced. What vile hypocrisy it is to preach against sin and then to nurture it within our own hearts. You should expect your pastor to have a lifestyle that backs up what he's calling you to do. And notice the metaphor that Paul uses again. What did he use before? I was like a nurturing mother. I was like a nursing mother. Now what does Paul say? Look at verse 10. In, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This time Paul says, I'm like a father. Now, there's a difference between mothers and fathers. We know that, right? Mothers tend to be a little bit more nurturing. Mothers tend to be a little bit more caring and gentle. But sometimes when a father comes in, what does he do? He's still nurturing and caring, but sometimes a father's more firm. A father's a little bit more stern. A father's a little bit more direct. He's still loving. He's still caring. But sometimes, you know, when mom, when mom says, wait till your dad comes home, you know, that's not probably a good thing. It's like, oh, I wish mom would just stay here. Sometimes fathers are a little bit more direct. But notice what Paul says he does as a father. He he says three things there in verse 12. We exhorted you. Exhorted basically means to encourage, to come alongside, to walk alongside, to get down into the trenches, and to come alongside and carry and walk and lead and help. We exhorted you. He also says we encouraged you. Encouraged really means to comfort, to console, 
to visit you when you're sick, to visit you in the hospital, to, to counsel with you, to comfort you, to be there during hurting times, to, to love on you, to encourage you. But then there's a little bit of a sternness there. Paul says, we charged you. That word charged really involves like an urgency, an emphatic almost like kind of stern. We, we charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so sometimes the pastor says, listen, it's time to stop messing around and it's time to get going. I've loved on you, I've encouraged you, but now it's time for you to take a step and, and start making some, some, some progress here. So, so Paul says, we came to you as a father. But listen, I have no right to challenge you, to exhort you, to encourage you, to, to sternly warn you of anything if my life doesn't back it up. It's the height of arrogance. And so here's what you should expect from your pastor. You should expect his lifestyle to back up what he's calling you to do in repentance and obedience. Let's look at the fifth thing. Paul's ministry model. You really see this in verses 2 and in verses 14 through 16. Look at verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, he's talking about when he and Silas were put in jail back at Philippi. They were thrown in jail. Then go down to chapter um, 2, verses, I'm sorry, verses 14 and 16. He talks about how they became imitators because they suffered at the own hands of their countrymen who killed the Lord Jesus and his prophets, and how they suffered. So here's Paul's ministry model, and here's what you should expect from your pastor. You should expect your pastor to be on the front lines of suffering for the gospel. You should expect your pastor to be on the front lines of suffering for the gospel. Here's, here's the newsflash. We in America are heading for days of persecution. I don't know to what extent it's going to happen. I don't know how deep and how, how, how um, impactful it's going to be, but, but I can tell you that it's going to be harder and harder for pastors to, to pastor. So you should expect this man here to be on the front lines of suffering for the gospel. Whether that means being silenced, being threatened, being taxed, being imprisoned, you should expect me to be like Paul. Paul said, I was thrown in jail for the gospel. I've suffered for the gospel. Now, I don't want to suffer. I don't have this martyr complex where I'm like welcoming it, but you need to expect that if persecution comes, you're not going to have a pastor that's going to run and hide. But he's going to be on the front line saying, we're God's people, and what comes may come. God is sovereign. I'm going to lead the charge in the face of suffering. You need a pastor that's willing to do that. What's the sixth thing we see? Paul's ministry desire. See this in verses 17 through 19. Paul's ministry desire. So here's what you should expect from your pastor. You should expect your pastor to have your growth and maturity as one of the greatest concerns and joy. You should have, or you should expect your pastor to have your growth and maturity as one of his greatest concerns and joy. Look at verse 17. What does Paul say? We were torn away from you. We were torn away from you. Why was Paul torn away? Well, he was only there for three weeks. A mob came and ransacked the city, and he had to be torn away from them. And Paul says, listen, I've been torn away, and I, and I long to see you guys face to face. Verse 17, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. We want to come back. We want to be with you. But here's something that's happened. Verse 18, here's a reality that I don't think a lot of lay people understand 
And I'm not saying it's because pastors are better. I'm just saying that we're in a different situation. But here's something that pastors deal with in a different way. And that is this. Spiritual warfare. Look at verse 18. Satan hindered us. We wanted to come back and visit you. We wanted to come back and see you face to face. We wanted to be part of your lives, but somehow Satan hindered us. Now here's the problem that we don't know. Paul doesn't tell us what Satan did. Did Satan, was Satan behind the, the, the amped up persecution in Thessalonica? We don't know. Was it a thorn in his flesh that Paul references in 2 Corinthians? We don't know. Paul, Paul doesn't say how Satan hindered it, but here's the reality. Here's the reality. When a pastor wants to do effective ministry, Satan's right there wanting to hinder the work. Satan is going to want to stop the work. Do you realize that Satan does not want you to grow? Satan does not want you to learn. Satan does not want you to be here. Satan does not want you to hear. Satan does not want anything good for you. So he's going to try everything in his limited power to somehow thwart the purposes of God, and here's how he's going to do it. He's going to try to take out the main guy and the main guy's family. Pastors are targets of spiritual warfare. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2.11. So that we might not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. Satan has designs. Satan has plans. We don't want to be outwitted by them. Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is where I need your prayers as pastor. This is where my family needs prayers. Satan will attack like a roaring lion and his ultimate goal is to take me out, to take my family out, so that I will be destroyed, Andrew will be destroyed, our elders will be destroyed, and this church will be destroyed. He wants nothing less than the destruction of Emmanuel Baptist Church. It's real. We need to be very realistic about spiritual warfare in the life of the church. But notice what Paul's joy is. What's his pride and joy? Verse 19, this is Paul's pride and joy. What's our hope? What's our joy? What's our crown? What's our boasting? What are we excited about? Is it not you? Paul says, listen, the one thing that gets me jazzed up, the one thing that gets me excited, the one thing that I'm, I'm just really excited about is you. Your growth, your maturity, your progress, you're my joy, you're my crown. If I'm going to boast about somebody, I'm going to boast about you. And, and so that should be the ministry heart of a pastor. A pastor's greatest joy should be your growth, I should be concerned with your growth, and it should be my joy to see you growing and progressing and being all that God has called you to be. And this is why prayer is so crucial to all of this. You know, in light of last week where I called us forward to pray as a church family, many of us were in tears and were repenting. But it's not just a one Sunday thing where we cry at the altar we need to be praying for the Holy Spirit to sustain that power in us day by day as we live life. And so let me just say this. I want to publicly thank, and I'm not going to mention names because they know who they are and they don't want attention. 
I want to publicly thank the prayer warriors in this church who I know are praying for me and my wife and my boys. I'm very thankful for that. Because without your prayers, it, it would be a lot more difficult. So I thank you for that. So what can you expect from your pastor? I hope you're not expecting perfection. Hope you're not expecting a guy that's never going to make mistakes. Hope you're not expecting a guy that's never going to let you down. But here's what I hope you can expect. I, I desire to be faithful to preaching the Bible faithfully and boldly. I desire to be a man who's humble before the Lord and has pure motives and always acts out of purity. Uh, you can expect a man that tries to love you tenderly. I know at times I fail, but would love you and have deep affection for you. And I hope that you're expecting a man whose lifestyle backs up what he's calling you to be as a church. I hope you expect a man who's willing to live on the front lines of suffering and to be out front. And I hope you expect a man who's concerned with your spiritual growth, one who's been entrusted and proved by God. So I've been praying all week, how do you end a sermon like this? Come to the front and accept Jesus. I mean, I don't know. The only way I know how to end a sermon like this is in preparation for the Lord's Supper is to do what Paul did. All throughout 1 Thessalonians, Paul thanks the Lord for this church. So let me thank you. Fathers, we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. I'm thankful for being part of this family for the past 10 years. I'm thankful for their patience with me. I'm thankful for their support of me. I'm thankful for their encouragement, their generosity, their prayers. I'm thankful for the way they've supported my wife. I'm thankful for the way that they have loved my children especially Zachary. Lord, I'm a feeble man that doesn't know a lot and makes a lot of mistakes. But I thank you for Emmanuel Baptist Church. Would you equip me to be the pastor that this church needs? Maybe not the one they want, but the one they need. And Lord, would you reveal sin in my own heart that I would be quick to confess and quick to repent and Lord, that I would be approachable, that I would be courageous, that Lord, I would be tender at times. I'd be firm at times. Lord, I just need wisdom. Lord, I pray for our elders, and I pray for Pastor Andrew, too. Lord, I'm thankful for Pastor Andrew. Thankful for Julie and the ministry that they lead of our youth. Lord, as they have that flock of, of students under their care, Lord, would, would Andrew live 
um, up to these standards as well. Lord, we'll be praying for him diligently and praying for our youth ministry, Lord. And for our elders as well, Lord, I'm thankful for, the, for Mickey and for Glenn and for Russell and their wives. And Lord, for our deacons and for, for our leaders, Lord, I'm just thankful. You're a great God and you've done a great work and we, we continue to want to submit to you. And so, Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, may we do this really in remembrance of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.